Well, what we're going to talk about today uh, is this is our second of uh, two topics or two uh, sessions, I should say, where we'll be talking about the Gospel of Mark. I love the Gospel of Mark. It is one of my four favorite Gospels. Um, and so uh, I, I really do like it. Um, it, uh, it just, it, Mark is so fresh and raw and, you know, hot off the press, uh, you know, kind of, uh, of a gospel. And uh, uh, the, the way that Mark writes so breathlessly and moves from one topic to the next to the next to the next and, uh, and gives us this incredibly human uh, portrayal of Jesus, I, I just, uh, Mark does his focus a lot on uh, Jesus' authority and then the controversy that that authority generates. So uh, Jesus, when he speaks in the, in the Gospel of Mark, no footnotes. He just says, I say. And he deliberately stirs up trouble from time to time. In fact, the, the illustration that I'll sometimes use with my students is that scene from Braveheart where, uh, you know, uh, William Wallace goes riding out on the horse to the parlay and starts circling around there. And, and when Hamish first asks him, you know, what are you, what are you doing here? He says, I'm going to pick a fight. Um, and you can tell that there's an element of that in Jesus' actions in the book of Mark, that there are ways that he could have handled things more, um, you know, with a little bit more tact. He could have been a little bit, you know, softer on some of these things, but he does not seem to have been inclined to do that, that he wanted the people to come face to face with certain aspects about who he was, especially when he's dealing with the religious leaders, and so he, he deliberately picks a fight and then draws out of that there is a lesson about him, and whether that lesson is I was, I was sent to those who are sick, or whether it's the lesson of, you know, I'm the one who defines what's okay to do on the Sabbath, or human needs are more important than ritual requirements, he is the one who's pushing for the people to have to confront these kinds of ideas. What we're going to talk about today are the, the two major themes of Mark's gospel. One of them is called the Messianic Secret. Uh, some of you may have heard of this notion before. The other one is called disappointing disciples. And I'm, I am only the messenger. Um, I am I'm not, you know, attacking the disciples by any stretch of the imagination. That would be Mark uh, who does that. Mark really goes after these guys. And we'll see how the, the other gospel writers, uh, you know, even will say, I don't know, Mark. They don't, they don't seem to have been quite that bad um, when, uh, when we see just how much uh, Mark gives to this topic. But you've got a hand out there. Um, and I, I hope I'm printing about enough or at least enough for couples to share there. We're going to look at a few passages where, first of all, this messianic secret idea comes in. Uh, to start off in that passage I have for you there in Mark chapter 1, and, and listen to this odd thing that Jesus does. It says in verse 40, A leper came to him, begging him, and kneeling he said to him, by the way, one of the big characteristics of Mark, Mark, Mark is almost allergic to antecedents to pronouns. He just, when you read through Mark, it's just him and he and he and they and him and the, and it's like reading one of those novels where they don't put the John said, Bill said, Tom said, and you find yourself having to work your way back through the conversation to see who's saying what. This is Mark. When Mark writes, he rarely ever, you know, does those antecedents. Matthew and Luke will come in and they'll say, well, here's a thought, Jesus said. And there's, oh, okay, now, now I get it. So you'll notice all the hymns and he's there. If you choose, the leper says, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. 
Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now here Jesus has just done this great miracle here. You notice that it's done in terms of clean or unclean because, you know, this leprosy here, it doesn't, it's not the Hansen's disease that, you know, causes you to lose limbs and things like that. It's just a kind of like psoriasis or something. So it's not even necessarily contagious, but it's one of those things that in the legal system would have made you uh, incapable of participating in temple worship and other kinds of things like that. So it was kind of socially isolating. And so the way that he puts it is, you can make me clean. Jesus has just done this great miracle. Now, you, you know what Jesus will do. He'll take out a stack of business cards, and he'll say, now, go tell all of your friends that I did this, and have them come, and the message will spread. And he does just the opposite. Saying to, after sternly warning him, verse 43, he sent him away at once, you know what word that is, immediately, saying to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Jesus has just done this great miracle, and his response to this miracle is, don't you tell anybody what I just did. Now, we're cynical enough, or perhaps we've read enough of Tom Sawyer, that we know that maybe this is just reverse psychology, right? This is Tom's way of getting the fence whitewashed, you know, uh, when, when Aunt Polly, oh, Aunt Polly, she's very strict about this, you know. So maybe this is just reverse psychology. Jesus says, well, don't tell, and that way he'll go out and tell, and, and that is actually what happens. Uh, it says in verse 45, I don't have this on your handout, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country and people came to him from every quarter. So here Jesus has said, don't tell. Well, the result is the guy does tell. Maybe that's what Jesus is after. He's just trying to pull a fast one on him. I don't think so. Let's look at another passage. Look at Mark chapter 5. This is a wonderful story here that you'll be familiar with. The story of Jairus' daughter. It says, my little daughter's at the point of death. Can you come and, and restore her to life? And so Jesus is going to go. And then he's interrupted by the woman who has the perpetual hemorrhage. And so he's delayed. And in the process, that's when the daughter dies. That's where we pick up our story. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he had said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kumi which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years old. I, I love that line. Mark has put the she was 12 years old in there so that we're clear that she was old enough to be walking around. I just, it's, it's one of those, like, for they were fishermen. Um, it's, it's a great line. Um, at this, they were overcome with amazement. He strict, wait a minute, he did it again. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I actually think this story is just a series of things that Jesus does to try to limit the exposure of this miracle. I mean, first of all, he doesn't even let all of the disciples go, right? So he says only, you know, Peter, James, and John. When he arrives, he says, well, she's just sleeping. So that even if Jesus does do this miracle, it's not going to, you know, they're going, well, 
Okay, well, maybe she just had swooned or something. And then he takes only just this little select group, heals her, and then orders them, do not tell. Jesus, this doesn't seem to be reverse psychology. Jesus seems to be working hard to limit this. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I, it's an interesting thing about Mark because, you know, when you read Mark, there's certain passages where there are aspects of the law that Jesus is going to seem to set aside in Mark's gospel. For, for example, there's a passage, I think it's Mark 7, where uh, Jesus will say, well, you know, it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of a person. And, and Mark will come to the conclusion, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Matthew doesn't actually follow him on that one. Matthew will copy that passage from Mark, but he will omit the part and so forth in there. So there is a, a part of the law that he's still hanging on to, even in Mark. Absolutely. When, um, when Jesus is doing these miracles, he's, he's doing things to try to limit the exposure to them. I'll show you one more here. Look at Mark 7. It says, uh, this is Mark 7, verse 32. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowds. See what he's doing again? He's kind of limiting that exposure. It says, um, he put his fingers into his ears, he spat and touched his tongue, and then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatah, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So there's kind of a pattern, and it is tempting to say, ah, maybe it is that reverse psychology. Except for one thing. Look at the next verse. This is a passage where it's not a healing of a person. Mark 3.11 says this, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. Now, unless we are to imagine that Jesus is trying to come up with a bunch of demonic evangelists who will go out and, you know, man, he's... He tricked me. Um, you know, this is the passage in the screw tape letters that, uh, you know, that, that Lewis forgot to mention, that Jesus is using them to proclaim this, using reverse psychology on them. Clearly, Jesus is not doing that. Jesus seems to be tamping down some aspect of his mission and message. Even when these unclean spirits identify him as the Son of God, Jesus says, don't you say that. Don't you, don't you go out and say this. In fact, in the, the passage where uh, Jesus is going to cast the demons into the swine, it says that Jesus tells them to be silent, for they had said, you are the Son of God. Uh, we know who you are, you know, the Son of God. Jesus even kind of uh, puts the brakes on his disciples spreading this message about Jesus. If you'll notice in the next passage, this is Mark chapter 9. This is actually one of my favorite passages, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, look at Mark 9 verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, so again we've got this smaller cohort of the disciples there, and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. 
There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Peter is by far out. Um, but if, Peter, if a thought pops into Peter's head, it comes out of his mouth. I think this is Peter. Um, and, and it's funny because even, even Mark, as the evangelist here, admits this. If you look at verse 6, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. In other words, he didn't know what to say. Not saying anything was apparently not one of the options. So he's going, uh, well, 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 Jesus, let's, let's make a tabernacle for everybody. You get a tabernacle, and you get a tabernacle, and you get a tabernacle. Well, why did he say it? Because they were terrified, and not speaking is not one of Peter's options. It says, then a cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, and this is why I love this passage so much, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen. What was that process like for Peter? They go back down to the rest of the disciples and over the campfire that night, hey, what would you guys do up on the mountain? They had seen Moses and Elijah and Jesus for who he really was. And they have to go, nothing. Can't, 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 not supposed to say. How, did, how could possibly Peter have kept this to himself that night? Or, you know, hey, you remember that time where we saw Moses? And he can't say a word about this. Jesus is even telling his disciples not to say until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. So the question that we have here, and I've only given you just a handful of the passages where you find it, is Jesus seems to be on a consistent basis taking a certain aspect of his message, a certain aspect of his character, and telling the recipient of a healing or an unclean spirit or even his disciples don't you say, don't you tell what has happened here, what, what's going on? Well, one of the explanations, and I, I confess this is not the one that I think is convincing. Uh, there's a, a scholar by the name of William Reed who in the 19th century said, well, what this really is, is Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. And so this was Mark just sort of inventing this. And then he put it back in there and said, oh, yeah, he, he told him, but it was a secret. I just don't find this to be a sufficient explanation for what's going on here. I think there's a different kind of dilemma that Jesus is facing in his ministry. And it's one that is a little bit counterintuitive for us some two millennium, two millennia past the time of Jesus. The, the dilemma is this. You can be the Christ or you can go to the cross, but you cannot do both. Now, that seems odd to us because certainly in my mind, when I think of the Christ, the first thing I think of is the cross, right? I mean, some of us will have a cross that we'll wear or something like that. Well, what is that? Well, that's to reflect my faith in Jesus Christ, right? We think of Christ and the cross as, you know, basically interlinked with one another. This is not the case at all. Christ, or the word Christos in Greek, is just the Greek translation 
of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah, anointed one. Well, think about what that anointed one is supposed to be. The anointed one is the one who's anointed like Saul or David or Solomon or the other kings. This is the person who is anointed to be the uh, royal military leader whose job it is to come in, defeat Rome, and reestablish Israel as an independent nation. So when you think of the word Christ, what you're supposed to be thinking of is military conqueror who becomes king. Well, can you see how that doesn't go along with the idea of someone who is killed by the empire that you're supposed to be defeating militarily? So on the one hand, to be the Christ is to conquer Rome, to die on the cross is to be conquered by Rome. Now, imagine if you're in the audience of Jesus, which of these two roles would you prefer that your character play? Do you want Jesus to be the one who comes in, kicks some Roman butt and takes names, and reestablishes Israel as an independent nation, or do you want him to die a terrible death on the cross? It's, it's pretty easy to figure out which of these you want. We have, a, we have a filter sometimes with it's not just what we're able to hear, but it's what we want to hear. My, uh, I remember one time with my sons, uh, Michelle and I, were going to take them to Disney World, or at least we were hoping to take them to Disney World. And so we were gathered there, culture classes for the summer, and our tax bill doesn't come in, and it's too high again, and your mom is able to get a little bit of tutoring and so forth. None of these words were actually heard by my children. When, once they heard Disney World, I doubt I had even made it to the D in World before they were like, we're going to Disney World! For them, all they heard was, we're going to Disney World, and truthfully, I was foolish as a parent to have done the conversation that way. I should have started with all of the provisos, whereas... You know, and, and then finally, you know, be it resolved that at the end said Disney World, of course, with an eight and a ten-year-old, that wouldn't have mattered anyway. If we're dealing with the disciples, here they're following this guy, and they see two paths for him. One path is this guy's going to be king. And the other path is this guy's going to be crucified. They only want to hear about one of these potential paths. In fact, there's a particular passage where you can see this so clearly. If you uh, look at your hand out there, look at the last passage I have for the Messianic secret. It says here in uh, Mark 8, verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is this very interesting place that's up in the very north of Israel. There's this rock wall that has these niches where the Romans would put their gods there. Um, there's a, a temple to Caesar Augustus, a temple to Pan, a temple to uh, Nemesis, a, another place for the, uh, uh, the satyrs, the dancing goats, and so forth. We've, we've been there to that particular spot and, and seen this uh, passage in, in action. It says, on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Messiah. Now, when you read Messiah, what you're reading is Christ. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Matthew would put it. You're the Messiah. And what is Jesus' response to this? He sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Look at the next line, though. 
It says in the next verse, it says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus' way of referring to himself, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. Do you see the difference in the way that he deals with things? When it's something that has to do with his exercise of power, something that puts him into the role of Messiah, he tells the disciples, don't talk about that. When it comes to the message of his suffering, this he says quite openly. It's, in fact, this is the third prediction of the Passion that will come up in, in Mark's Gospel, where he tells them for the third time, this is what's going to happen. And you all know this without even looking at your text. What is it that Peter does when Jesus starts to talk about dying? He rebukes him. Peter rebukes the Messiah. It says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The two potential paths for Jesus are laid out right before him. One is the Messiah role. One is the cross role. And they don't want the cross role so much so that Peter rebukes him when he starts talking about dying. What Peter, and I think Peter's representing the disciples in this case, what he wants is this new king who's coming. Why is it that Jesus does this? Jesus is doing, I think, message control when he is telling people not to say this, not to talk about this, not to, to reveal this. Jesus knows that the kingship aspect of his ministry is going to be so attractive that no one will want to hear about that other aspect of his ministry. And yet Jesus knows it's the other aspect that has to come first. Jesus, as one of the things I think Jesus is doing is he has picked out his models in the Hebrew Bible of whose footsteps he's going to walk through. And he knows that the footsteps he has to follow are footsteps that lead to the cross. He knows that the more important thing for him to do now is to die on the cross. That is, the, that is the, the way that he is organizing his life. In fact, in every one of the Gospels, the, the latter half of the Gospel is a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and Jesus knows that when he gets there, he's going to die. He is walking in footsteps that will lead him into the cross, and he knows this is the most important thing for me to do now. Now, in some of the ways that New Testament writers will present it, it's going to be because Jesus is that sacrificial lamb that takes away our sins. This is John, you know, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In, in Luke's gospel, it'll be a little different. Luke is going to portray Jesus as the, the martyr whose death is... Jesus is wrapped in strips of cloth and put into a hollowed out stone manger, just like he will one day be wrapped in strips of cloth and put into a hollowed out stone tomb. Jesus was born to die, and Jesus has to squash down this other aspect of his ministry that is going to push him into the, the throne before he's able to go to the cross. I always find it interesting, though, that Jesus takes such a convoluted way of doing this. Now, it's, it's not my role to question the Messiah, obviously, but if you have a problem that every time you do a miracle, somebody ends up thinking that you're the Messiah, you know, rightly, obviously, and wanting to spread this message, it would seem like there's a, a, a pretty simple way of stopping this issue. Don't do the miracles. 
if you do a miracle and people say, this is the Messiah, and they start to spread the message and you don't want that, well, it's pretty easy. Then don't do the miracles. The very first passage we looked at, love this passage. The leper comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Three of the most precious words in the Gospels are when it says, moved with pity. This is just who Jesus is. He sees this man, and although he knows that every time he does a miracle, it's going to throw into jeopardy the whole point for his coming to earth, he looks at him, and he just can't help himself. Moved with pity, he said, I do choose. Be made clean. The, the role that Jesus takes upon himself because he can do nothing other is the role of a healer. Jesus is very hesitant to do miracles like turning the water into wine. That, that's the one where, you know, when he says to his mom, it's not my time, I don't want to do this, and I, I love how she just completely ignores that and says, just do what he says, and then just leaves uh, because she knows that he'll obey. Th this is not the kind of miracle that he wants to do. If he makes food, he makes it to feed the multitudes because it actually says in the Gospels that Jesus had pity on the multitudes. And so that's why he, he breaks the loaves and the fishes for them. Jesus doesn't do those kinds of miracles with the goal of just creating some kind of fireworks that will attract people's attention. When Jesus is prompted to act on behalf of his Father in a supernatural way, it's because he is moved with pity. There's a reason why, if you're a Tolkien fan, that Aragorn is the, the king, and the king is identified by the fact that he's a healer. If you read it closely, it says the hands of the kings are the hands of a healer. Why did Tolkien put that in there? It's because Aragorn is the Christ figure in the Lord of the Rings. What was the defining aspect of Jesus' ministry? We have to deal with is, is that this is an aspect of who Jesus is that we are not natively inclined to follow. It's not what we want out of Jesus. And that's going to be the problem that the disciples and, frankly, everyone else will have in Mark's gospel is they just cannot get their heads around Jesus. To put it in modern terms, they don't get it. No one in Mark's gospel, I mean, no one in Mark's gospel gets Jesus. Now, let me walk you through a few passages so you can see what I mean by that. Uh, first of all, you look down at the bottom of your uh, front page of your handout there, even Jesus' family doesn't understand. They don't get Jesus in Mark's gospel. Look at Mark 3 there. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. Now you've got to work through the, the details of this. The crowd is saying Jesus has lost it. He's gone out of his mind. Who believes that in this verse? Jesus' own family. If Jesus' family had truly understood who he was, is done gone crazy one of the options for what's going on with Jesus? No. Why would they go out to restrain him? Because they believed he had gone out of his mind. If they truly understood who Jesus was, that would not have been one of the options. Even Jesus' family in Mark's gospel, does not understand who Jesus is. 
Certainly Jesus' fellow townspeople, I mean, this is in part what we're dealing with here is the people that don't understand. But look at that passage in Mark 6 there at the bottom of the page. It says, he left that place and came to his hometown. So, you know, you understand with Jesus that um, he's born in Bethlehem. And then he's raised in Nazareth, this tiny, tiny little uh, town that's there. Uh, in fact, it's so small that the current uh, Basilica of the Annunciation encompasses the entire village of Nazareth uh, from Jesus' day. It's just this little podunk place. I mean, it was, Nazareth was the kind of place where they had both the welcome to and you are now leaving on the same sign, you know, back in antiquity. So it's a very small village there. That's where he, he's raised, but then he sets up his base of operations up on the north side of the Sea of Galilee at the town of Capernaum. Well, he goes back to Nazareth. It says uh, his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? And, and when you, you first read that, like, whoa, they're, they're very impressed. They're not impressed. What they're saying is, who's this guy think he is? In fact, you can tell that they begin to be pointed about this when they say, isn't this the carpenter? Now, y'all, it's not my fault. I said, I'm just the messenger. The odds are Jesus wasn't a carpenter. The word that's here, it's the word uh, uh, technion, which is the word for a craftsman. It's where we get our word like technology uh, from. So it just says Jesus is a craftsman. If you go to Israel, you'll see that there is a precious dearth of wood and an overabundance of stone. And so the likely Jesus was a stone worker, uh, the odds would say, rather than a carpenter. I think we probably, because of church tradition, connect him with uh, carpentry because we think of the wooden cross that's there. But probably, again, it's not my fault. Um, but he was a craftsman of some sort. Isn't this the craftsman, the son of Mary? Y'all, I have that underlined for a reason. That's a pointed line in that day and age. I am delighted to be known as Cheryl's son. Just as happy to be called Cheryl's son as to be called Jim's son. My, my parents, Jim and Cheryl. This is not how you refer to a man in that day and age. When they said, yeah, in this <coughs> Mary's son, what they're doing is whatever this, who knows, what story had Mary and Joseph told to the people around them about the circumstances of Jesus' birth? We, we don't know. But one thing that we know from this line is they apparently didn't buy the idea that Joseph was involved. Now, I, I don't know what it's like if you go out and tell people, yes, I was, you know, I conceived as a virgin. Of course, the people would not believe that. And in this passage here, they, they pointedly say they don't believe that. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is Mary's sign. That's a dig at Jesus' heritage when they say that. Yeah, isn't this the carpenter? <laughs> the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus takes offense right back. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. In other words, prophets, you might be a big deal somewhere else. You come back home and you're not such a big deal. The way I like to put it is, I'm, you know, Michael Jordan can't step foot in public without being mobbed by people around him. And I bet when he's home, his mom says, get your feet off the coffee table. You might be a big deal out there. I know who you really are. You're not a big deal here. Prophets are not without honor, Jesus says. In other words, I get honored everywhere I go, and I come to my own hometown and my own kinsfolk, and you don't honor me. The 
the townspeople, maybe Jesus' family, it says, among his own kin, don't really get who Jesus is. I, I don't think we need to uh, elaborate on the fact that the, the religious leaders of the day didn't understand who Jesus was. In fact, we went through some stories related to that last week. What, what's so interesting is the disciples. They take it on the chin more than anybody else in Mark's gospel. They don't understand who Jesus by this parable. And so they, they say to Jesus, it says, um, hey, could you, could you explain that parable? <laughs> and look at verse 13. Jesus said to them, I'm sorry, in Mark, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all of the other parables? Guys, this is the remedial parable here. If you don't get this one, how are you going to get the other ones? I, when I taught high school at Briarwood, I went to a, a, a homecoming game. And I, I saw one of my former students who had gone down to Auburn. And uh, I, I saw him and I said, hey, you know, how you doing? And, and he just, he visibly slumped. He just went, oh, college is so hard. And I said, oh, yeah, I mean, you, you get down there, it's pretty tough. You know, you're playing for keeps there. And, and I said, well, what's, what's giving you so much trouble? And he went, oh, math, math. And I said, yeah, you know, you start hitting calculus and things like that. And he, it gets really tough. And he went, oh, no, Dr. Leonard. I'm in the remedial math. <laughs> so he was really struggling in the remedial math. Well, we talked for a few more minutes, and this is the best part. And so I said, well, well uh, I won't say his name. I said, uh, well, so what's your major? And he said, engineering. <laughs> I have mastered what I call the noncommittal head bob. So I... <laughs> He got a double dose of the noncommittal head bomb. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I don't know what your major is going to be four years from now, but it will not be engineering. Jesus looks at the disciples and like, well, I'm sorry, you don't understand this parable? Well, how are you going to understand all of the other parables here? This is a fairly easy one, and they don't get it. Um, there's a, a, a great one here. If you look at Mark uh, uh, chapter 8, this is about uh, after Jesus has fed the 4,000. Uh, Jesus uses this as an object lesson. It says, The disciples had forgotten to bring any bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. So, in other words, they, they've forgotten to bring enough bread. And so Jesus just kind of takes this opportunity to draw a lesson. I, I, I do this almost instinctively with my sons. I'll, I'll see one of these guys who's out there in July heat in Alabama waving a sign you know, for this kind of sale or whatever, and the words just pop out of my mouth to my sons. I say, stay in school. It could be a lot worse. It's just an object lesson. They said to one another, it's because we have no bread. Becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? And then he goes on and, and, and talks to him about what he was really saying. This was not an object lesson about remember to pack your lunch. This was an object lesson about be careful about dabbling into the Pharisees' teaching because once you start, it will take over everything that you do. They, well, sometimes it's not just that they don't understand, but they actually oppose. They argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, first of all, if we think of this in religious terms, Jesus' message in essence, is put other people before yourself, isn't it? I mean, it's basically treat other people as more important than yourself is the heart of his message. And what are they doing? They're arguing over who is the greatest. If we put it in more practical terms, what adults do this? 
If I were walking across Sanford's campus and I hear two students going, oh, yeah, I'm better than you are, I'm better than you are, I would, you know, hit both of them in the ears and say, what are you doing? You're acting like a bunch of kindergartners. No, we don't do that. Here are the disciples acting in exactly the opposite fashion of everything Jesus has taught them. You look at Mark 10 here, Jesus is, is predicting the fact that he's going to his death, tells them all of these terrible things that will happen, and then look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. You got to make sure you get the contrast. Jesus has just said to the disciples, Guys, we're going to Jerusalem, and they are going to arrest me, turn me over to the Gentiles, beat me, mock me, and kill me. And James and John go, Uh-huh, hey, can we have the two best seats when we get to the kingdom? Is it, I mean, it's, I, I come in and I say, you know, to my students, Guys, I, I don't know how to say this, but I've been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. I only have a few weeks to live. And are we still going to have to take the final you know, that this is the sort of way that the disciples have responded here, is they've said, yeah, that's right, shotgun when we get to the kingdom. It, the disciples are going to disappoint in this way at every turn. We already saw that when Jesus reveals that he's going to die, Peter rebukes him. When the disciples, uh, they see Jesus, I, I just love this one. If you look at that Mark 6 passage, when the disciples see Jesus walking on the water to come to them, do you notice how the passage ends? It says, they were utterly astounded, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They have gotten it into their heads that Jesus has walked out onto the water to the boat because he's still mad at them for not bringing enough bread. And their hearts are hardened. This is the way that they respond. Don't have too much time, but I don't want to skip this one. Look at that Mark 9 passage. I, I, some of y'all are old enough that you may have had what's called the loaf of promises. None of my students have ever had this. Even their grandmothers at this point have not had them. But it's this little porcelain piggy bank kind of thing. And it had little like business card sized things that had verses on them. And you know, they're, they're verses for encouragement. Oh, come here, sweetie. It's... I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, and not those kinds of things. You know, the, this, this set of verses did not make the loaf of promises. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. I'd love to put this in the loaf of promises just because I have a, a warped sense of humor. He answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? <laughs> Bring him to me. You can tell that even the Messiah is exasperated at how obtuse the disciples are. Wouldn't that be fun? Here, sweetie, let's read this one. You know, how much longer must I put up with you? Jesus. Um, we, we know, because we know the story of the disciples, that this is not where it ends. They fall asleep while Jesus prays. Judas, one of his disciples, is going to betray him. All of the disciples are going to abandon him. Peter is going to deny ever knowing him. In Mark's gospel, the disciples take it on the chin. Now, there is a logic to why Mark has um, uh, grabbed on to all of these different things. And, and truthfully, he's relentless in the way he goes after them.
But if you, if you want to find out that reason, you're going to have to come back next week. Uh, next week, I'll give you the whole point of Mark's having done that.